Hello there, Terry here with yet another episode of the Animation Industry Podcast. Today, I'm chatting with Max Lopez, who is a stop-motion executive producer, director, animator, and armature machinist from New Jersey. And he's worked on such films as Helen Back, which was his first job, Anima Lisa, Wendell and Wilde, and most recently Bubbles, but he cut his teeth on the 13-time Emmy award-winning series Tumbleweed. So Max studied animation at the Rochester Institute of Technology under Tom Gasek, where he met his creative slash business partner Sean Maloney there, and after graduation he went home for about two weeks to say goodbye to his family before moving to Los Angeles with Sean, where he's been ever since, and it's been about seven years now. And so on Tumbleleaf, when Max worked there, he learned the ins and outs of producing a really high craft series and creating a studio culture that pushes artists to grow and do their best work. So then after about four years of working on Tumbleleaf, he left with Sean to create his own studio. And in the two and a half years since Apartment D's founding, the studio they created, they've brought on yet another partner, Cami Kwan, who's amassed millions of views on YouTube and recently negotiated their largest contract to date. Now, before we dive in, this episode is sponsored by the awesome team at startastudio.com. Start a Studio is a new online school focused on the business side of animation. They have both free and paid courses, an online community, and downloads to help you succeed in your animation career and build your own cool, creative, and viable animation studio. All the content is written and presented by experienced animator and studio founder John Draper. And you can use the unique discount code AIP as an animation industry podcast in the checkout to save 20% on their popular pro studio startup course. So whether you're looking to up your freelance game or plan and launch your own animation company, check out startastudio.com. Now let's jump into the chat. So Max, I'm really excited to chat about stop motion and building your own studio. How's, how's it going on your end? Good. Thank you for having me. Good, good. Thank you for coming. Um, so you're like a pretty well-known stop-motion animator, and I kind of gave a little bit of uh, some insight on, on where you got your beginnings, but I'm just wondering if you can share kind of where all this, where you got the inspiration to follow stop-motion and, and kind of your journey since then. Yeah, uh, you know, I I don't know anymore if this is true only to stop-motion people or if it's really just true of everybody. But I feel like it's kind of a quintessential childhood experience to like throw some toys in front of like your parents' VHS camera and try to make a move. At least every single person in stop motion has done that. But I feel like that's kind of a more ubiquitous experience. Um, but I definitely started there. For me, it was like trying to replicate like a magic trick. You know, how can I make a thing come to life? Um, and so that kind of just like was in the back of my mind since I was a small child. And as I got older, I really liked working with my hands. I was always building things. And so I thought I wanted to be an engineer. Uh, so I was studying engineering in school or in, or in uh, high school. I was doing like some engineering stuff and learning uh, to do like design on the computer. So I was learning AutoCAD and Rhinoceros um, and as like an extracurricular, my teacher gave me this program Maya to work with, which is now like the leading CG animation program. Um, and so I was just kind of messing around with it. I still thought I'd be an engineer. And then I saw this film that just like, the, I mean, it, the film itself wasn't particularly remarkable, but it was an animated film and there was like a moment in it that gave me chills. And that moment was when I realized like animation has a profound effect on people. I want to do that. What what film was it, if you can remember? Uh, you know, it's actually pretty ironic. It was this film, Flushed Away, 
Which oh, yeah. Made, yeah. And it was DreamWorks basically trying to get Ardman to stop doing stop motion. And it's, that's the film so that got me to stop motion. That's so funny. I mean, the whole film looks like it's got a stop motion, Ardman stop motion style in it. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it could have just been stop motion, but that's funny that that film got you into stop motion. Well, and they even in earlier in an early development phase of that film, they were go- trying to make it in stop motion, but DreamWorks was really leaning on Ardman to move into CG, and that clearly worked out perfectly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nailed it. So, so ever, I mean, it sounds really ambitious to become an engineer in high school, but so it sounds like you had a lot of ambition from the start. So, how did you actually get into stop motion? So, you saw this film flushed away and you're working in Maya but then you know how did you make and you were making things as like a kid but how did you actually jump into the profession of of stop motion yeah um you know so I was looking for once I decided I was going to be an animator I was looking for it it was really you know luck honestly because I was looking for a school that had a good computer animation program and I wound up at RIT which had this incredible incredible professor Tom Gasick who had such a strong background in stop motion. He was like a true veteran. He'd worked at Ardman. He had worked on Coraline. He had worked on Gumby. I mean, he really came from like the roots of American stop motion. Um, And so I was there thinking I wanted to do CG, but within a year, I was like, no, I'm doing stop motion. And I think that really was just, you know, I thought I wanted to do CG just because that was my context for animation. But the moment I started working with my hands again, I was just like, oh, no, this is the way. And, like, with computer animation, all I ever wanted to do was reach into the screen and just, like, no, just be like this. So, I mean, stop motion was just, like, a natural. Um, So, yeah, I went to school, uh, studied it for four years, made a bunch of films. Uh, Along the way, I met Sean Maloney, my business partner. Um, and he and I made a film together in sophomore or junior year. And I basically, he was such a brilliant, he already was such a brilliant animator. Because he had, our, by the, when we all started school, 99% of us had never animated before. But Sean had already been animating for like almost a decade. So he just came in so far ahead of everyone. And I just wanted to learn how he did what he did and so i was just watching him and i realized while the rest of us were all you know messing around he like he you know we'd be like hey do you want to come do this thing and he'd be like no i'm gonna animate he was always animating and that diligence really i mean he taught me how to be disciplined basically so then so because of that by junior year i was like oh well i gotta be you know i gotta get serious about this then um, and at RIT, our professors really pushed this idea that we would never get a job. And I hated authority. So hearing that, I was like, well, screw that. I will get a job. And so I began this hustle that has just like continued to this day. I, w- I think I actually got my first internship after my sophomore year of college. I got two in L.A. after my junior year. And then two weeks after college, I moved out here my senior year. Um and like, I mean, it, it just never stopped. I just kept, I was always hunting for something and looking and learning and just trying to be the best. So with the internships, you know, getting an internship is not super easy, especially if you're like not in school. And if your prof didn't think 
you could do it. How did you go about getting all these internships? Um, well, it started because my professor, Tom Gasick, my sophomore year, put me in touch with an animator by the name of Adam Pierce, who ran a studio out of Brooklyn called Charged, Charged Studios. And so Tom was able to kind of get my foot in the door with this company, and I was able to kind of just more than learning stop motion from that internship, I learned how to do an internship from that internship, which maybe sounds a little silly, but I knew, I, well, no, I didn't really know anything at that point. You know, just learning kind of how to conduct myself in a professional environment. And, you know, I showed up to my, my first interview there in like a button down shirt. And the guy who greeted me at the door had like a torn shirt with chest hair sticking out. And I was like, okay. It's a different speed, and I should, like, kind of learn to fit that environment. And so I learned a lot about just kind of how to operate. I, and I was, like, a hoodlum. So I needed to learn about how to operate in, like, a professional – well, in, like, this quasi-professional artist environment. So that's what I learned from the first internship. And then to get the next ones, Google. I just Googled stop-motion animation, stop-motion studios, you know, every keyword I could think of. And I just, like, found my list of studios – and then I just started hassling them endlessly. I had like a list and every month I would just go through and email them all. And then as, you know, after a few months, as we were getting pretty close to the summer, I started emailing them twice a, or, you know, every uh, twice a month. And then when that stopped working, I started calling people like I just refused to be ignored. And I mean, it's not even being ignored. You know, these people are just so busy that they don't have time. And you, it's all timing. It's all like when they when the guy behind the desk finally goes oh shit, we need, we're going to need animators or we're going to need interns. You want your email to already be sitting at the top of their email. And so it was just about that consistency that got my foot in those doors. So you had the experience as an intern and now also, you know, you have your professional career experience where you weren't an intern. Would you say getting those internships was really competitive? Like are people always applying for them? And, and the fact that you were just top of mind constantly really helped you out? I mean, I definitely think being keeping myself yeah fresh in their mind i definitely think that helped you know I, I i have no idea how many people were applying for these internships necessarily but i know that my work was not spectacular it's not like they saw my animation they were like this guy I, I, or at least i can't imagine that that's what it was but i think you know i was cordial and friendly and curious and consistent i was always emailing oh i just wanted to reach out again you know I touched base with you last month and I was curious if anything's changed. I would love the opportunity, you know, the kind right. of language that makes it, you know, your e my emailing was pretty aggressive. So I made sure the body of my emails was less so. So I, I want to talk about Apartment D, which is your studio, but I'm still curious about the whole internship thing. So like as an intern at a stop motion studio, what, what exactly are you doing? Do they hand you over some puppets right away or are you kind of like running coffees and just meeting people at first? Um, so my very first internship, my sophomore year, I, w I spent a decent portion of that summer painting a bathroom. Um, so yeah. Not like at the, at the studio or your own bathroom? Oh uh, yeah, painting the studio's bathroom, giving it a fresh coat. Um, and you know, at first I was like, oh, well this is dumb, but I, I did ultimately learn a lot just about being, how to be there. So it really, truly was valuable. I, I give a lot of credit to Adam Pierce for giving me, like, my first lessons. Um, 
then when I moved on to my so my junior year or the summer after, I interned at Screen Novelties and Shadow Machine, who at the time those were the two studios to be at. Um, Screen Novelties is still like one of the best places to be, um, and so at Screen Novelties. Actually, at both both internships were very hands-on. They were both in puppet departments. So even though I wanted to be an animator in the long term, it was an you know I would take whatever I could get. Um, and they, what I learned there turned out to be some of the most fundamentally valuable stuff that I learned. Um, on Hellenback, I was helping make ar- wire armatures, and I probably made like a hundred fifty wire armatures, and wow. which sounds grueling and at times it was but like the skills that i developed from that and the knowledge that i gained from that were just like unbelievable but i worked with this guy rob ronning who was just a master of his craft he was the head of the puppet department he's been making puppets ever since i don't remember if he was on nightmare before christmas no he was he was on nightmare before christmas ever since then he's been building puppets and he just has such a wealth of knowledge um, so I got to work with him and just mass produce armatures and meet other puppet fabricators. Um, and I also did some grunt work. You know, I remember there was a day where they were just like, can you line 500 shelves with this foam? Cause we're going to put puppets there. And I was like, cool, that's great. Um, but I got to just learn so much and meet the key is that I got to meet so many people. Um, you know, truly, I think when you're first getting into the industry, it's it's less about your skills because you don't really have many, and it's way more about the connections you make and the friends you make. You know, social networking really is just making friends. If people like you, they're gonna want to work with you. And like the people that I've seen edged out of the industry, nine times nine times out of ten. Is because of personality, not because of like a lack of skill. Skill can be taught, but personality that that's ingrained. Gotcha. So uh, once you moved on from internship, can you kind of like do a little Cole's notes of your career up until yeah. Tumbleleaf and, and your studio? So and also I, how you how you developed your skill in in stop motion as well as an animator. Yeah, you know I, I built so I I interned in uh, after my junior year. I got back to college my senior year, and I had two goals. One goal was to make a thesis that would turn into a good demo reel. I didn't care about telling a story. I wanted to work on other people's films. This wasn't me trying to, like, exercise my artist's voice. I just wanted to get a job. And so I came up with a film that would have moments that would be good in a demo reel, and I assembled the group that I would move to L.A. with. Because I knew, like... I basically, I got back, I basically what happened was I got back from L.A. and I talked to my girlfriend at the time and my two closest friends. And I was like, you three, forget whatever your plans were. We're moving to Los Angeles. I've found jobs. Um, <laughs> and so we built that group like immediately. This is the beginning of the year. And we waited until January to start like really making efforts to move. So we started like researching neighborhoods and we were all reaching out to various companies and uh, like really trying to set things in motion. So fast forward, um, we graduate. It's 2012, uh, and 
we all go home for literally two weeks just to like say goodbye to our families, hop in the car and drive to Los Angeles. Um, and this from January until driving out to Los Angeles, I'd been in constant communication with every single person I'd met. I was like, hey, what's going on out there? Has anything changed? Do you know of any jobs? Like, da, da, da. Again, like not being pushy, but being consistent. Um, and when I had been interning on Helen Back, I had met and become good friends with the director of animation on the film, this guy named Misha Klein. And so I was in constant touch with him. Any opportunity. Like, if I can come back, even if I could intern, like anything. And... We arrived out in L.A. in late June, and in, like, the middle of July, he reached out to me. He's like, I think we have a slot opening up. It's you. So I started as an animation assistant uh, on Helen Beck. And, you know, when you're an animation assistant, everybody who's an animation assistant just wants to be animating. So I took every opportunity to either do a test animation or, oh, like, it's just this little element for the film. Can I do that element? Um, and I would literally just stay there for like 14 or 15 hours a day, five days a week. You know, I'd work my 10 hour shift and then do like four or five an hours of, of like test animation. And then the next day I'd find any animator willing to look at it. And I would just be like, please, what can I do better? Help me, critique me. Um, and while, it, I mean, it was very valuable because it helped me grow as an animator, but the value that I didn't realize at the time was I was meeting all these people and showing them my determination. Um, so fast forward like a year, Helen back's over. Um, I bounced around, like I'd sent other emails and I'd met other people. So I'd bounced around a little bit at some studios. Uh, that's when I worked on Anomalisa, the uh, Charlie Kaufman film. And then I got a call out of the blue from this woman, Rachel Larson, who had was the she of all the animators that gave me feedback on Helen Beck, she was by far the best. She had such an incredible eye and a gift for teaching, really. And so she reached out to me and she was like, you know, I, I met you on Helen Beck. I really liked like your determination. You were building all these crazy things out of metal. I don't know how you were doing that. We need somebody to make armatures for Tumbleleaf. Will you come do that? And I was like, hell yes. Um, and so that was the tumbleleaf is like truly where my career began the first like year or so was kind of like me like landing figuring things out starting to build a network and like getting my bearings but like tumbleleaf marks like the beginning um and so she brought me onto tumbleleaf and i worked as a, and she was trying to pull me away from anomalisa to work on tumbleleaf and she was like, what's it going to take to get you to come here? And I was like, well, I don't know. I feel kind of weird leaving a production I'm on. And she was like, how about more money? And I was like, I mean, that's pretty cool. I still feel kind of weird. Would you be willing to let me go from being armaturist? And then when that's done, becoming an animation assistant. And she was like, yeah, we probably can't do that. And I was like, okay, whatever. I'll come anyway. So <laughs> I went on to Tumbleleaf. I worked as an armaturist for... I don't really remember, maybe like six or eight months. And then towards the end, when I was starting to ramp down on armatures, they were like, okay, Max, you used to do rigging, right? Like, how would we rig this thing? How could we make this work? And so I was building little rigs and helping them figure that out. Um, and then, like, 
right at the end when I was about to roll off and be done, they were like, okay, will you stay as an animation assistant? And I was like, oh my God, yes. So I worked as an animation assistant and then right at the very end of the, and like, you know, I was doing a lot of rigging, doing a lot of planning, doing a lot of cleaning, just doing whatever they needed me to do. Uh, but just like on Helen back, every moment I could, I was trying to animate. If there was like downtime, I was on a test stage, I was staying late, I was coming in early, anything to be animating. And I was always showing Rachel, who was now the director of animation, I was always showing her my work. Um, and so at the very end of the season, it was like the home stretch, it was getting crunchy, and she was like, all right, Max, we're going to throw you into animation. And honestly, like, I was not ready, but I think she understood that I would do everything in my power to get better, and that's really what she wanted. Um, so having only done, like, minimum amounts of acting and some, like, walk cycles, she was like, okay, here's your first shot. Fig the Fox is running down the stairs holding a bucket of mud that's sloshing around, and then she has to, he has to land on the table and pour the mud into this pan. And I'd literally never done any of what she had just described. And I was like, all right, well, here we go. And so I just dove in, and I animated for the rest of that season. And then the following season, I was an armaturist and then an animator. And that just became, like, my rhythm for the rest of my time there. I would start as an armaturist and then transition into animation. And it was the best. It was just the best. Nice. Um, so, <laughs> well, that's that's a lot. And also, when you're, like, doing armature, you just, you just like, can't wait to start anim animating again? Or you just, like, like how is doing something I, you didn't really aspire to do? You know, I kind of... I, I don't think I necessarily realized I was aspiring to do this, but I always wanted to be an armaturist. Uh, in college... In college, my, what was great about RIT was that you could take a – if you were in the art college, you could take anything in the art college. So I had like my core animation courses, but I was like, okay, what else would be useful? Puppet building, uh, metal working, right? I assume you need metal to make puppets. So I took a bunch of metal working classes, um, and we had one professor – who had like an old schematic of a ball and sock and armature, and he gave it to me. And I was like, I will make this. Um, and so I have like my first ball and socket armature, which is a total piece of garbage. Um, but so like early on, I was already kind of like, I wanted to animate, but I wanted to make things, and I was just going to kind of find my way. And so as an when I first started on Helen back, what really kind of like elevated me was the fact that I knew all this metalworking, so I could build rigs for them. And so while the other animation assistant very early on started animating, for me, they were like, oh, no, you're going to build rigs your entire time here. Um, so when it came time to do armatures and animation, I loved making armatures. That was just as exciting to me as animating. And so mm -hmm. I was getting like the both the best of both worlds. So when you said that, you know, Fig has to come running down the stairs, jump on the table, slosh the mud around, and you've never done that any, anything bef like that before. When I'm doing a stop motion, like animation, like trying my first walk cycle or something, half of the time is just figuring out exactly how it's going to look. So I'll do like a bunch of like tests and be like, oh, his arm needs to swing more this way when I actually do the loop. Did you have to redo that shot a lot? Or like, how did you just naturally figure it out? Because that's a lot of... Like, when you got to him jumping on the table, how did you get the jump right when yeah. you just made, figured out the running part? I wish I had, like, saved that dragon file, because I'm sure 
that the delete bin is like 10 times the size of the shot. Um, cause I'm sure like I did everything like two or three different ways just to figure it out. Um, but also as fast as I could so that I could get it done in time. Um, I think a lot of that like learning had already happened just from like testing nonstop. So I knew like, Oh, swing the arms like this. And like, you come up with like little recipes or algorithms for like how to execute little packets of animation. Um, and then the other thing was there was like a great culture on Tumbleleaf of like mutual support. So I'm sure whoever was like in the stage next to me, I probably pulled them in constantly and be like, look at this. Is this okay? What about this? How about here? And like was just getting all these pointers Not uh, on top of bringing Rachel Larson in to also give me feedback. Um, yeah. But it really was trial by fire. And I just kind of like, I, yeah, I don't know, felt my way blindly through it all. Sounds like uh, getting and seeking feedback has been a huge part in, in uplifting your career where it is right now. Absolutely. I yeah. I mean, it helped me grow as a person, definitely. Or, you know, as like an animator. Uh, but it also, you know, ingratiates you with people that you, that you, what, you want my advice? You know, and so without, while I was on Tumbleleaf, I was always getting offers to work at other studios. Again, not because I was the best animator, because I was not. I was like a bottom tier animator. But I was always reaching out to people like, oh, will you give me feedback? Could I like, you know, just chat with you? Could we get lunch and I could just like pick your brain about animation? And so people knew that I was eager. And so like I would, uh, Stupid Buddies, uh, which is another studio out here, I was always reaching out to, always getting feedback from and always getting offers to work and basically never working at because I was always tied up with, with Bixpix. But then like, the moment I had like a few weeks off at Bix, I could just go right over to Stupid Buddies. So when you're sending them, how are you getting feedback from somebody at Stupid Buddies if you don't really know them except through, I guess, like email or something? Are you literally sending them a file and being like, can you give me feedback on this? And then yeah. somebody will write back like, oh, do this instead. That's awesome. Well, you know, and luckily I was here where all the studios were. So I could, you know, I'd send an email and they'd be like, why don't you come in for like a lunch chat? And so I could all go. Right. That's like how I first met the director of animation at Stupid Buddies. I just, I sent him an email. I was like, could you give me any feedback? I'd really appreciate it. And he was like, yeah, come, you know, come in at this time. And I was like, yes, I will do that. Awesome. So you're at Tumbleweed for like four years. And then you went from there to start your own studio. Was there like an event or something at Tumbleweed? Or how did you gain the confidence? Especially if you're, you're getting offers from other studios all the time. What made you want to say, hey, I can build my own studio and then actually take the risk and do that. Cause that's huge. Yeah. Um, it, it was definitely a confluence of many events. Um, I think, you know, we, Sean and I always wanted to keep making our own stuff. We just like wanted to make fun stuff. We liked animation. We liked our own style and we had seen, there, there had been, like, directors that we had studied. We studied, for example, these two guys named the, the Daniels. Uh, the Daniels, if people know them, they would either know them because of their uh, music or music video Turned Down for What? by Little, for, for Little John or um, for their film Swiss Army Man. But 
what's really incredible about those two guys is their Vimeo page is just like a chronicling of their rise from shitty little videos in college to a feature film. And the underlying trend was just that they kept making their own stuff. So or very early on, Sean and I were like, well, we just got to keep making our own stuff, right? Um, but obviously that's very hard to do while you're fully employed and doing a million other things. And if you're animating professionally, the last thing you want to do is come home and animate more. Um, so what happened was there was what Sean and I refer to as the great hiatus. There was this summer where Tumbleleaf season one ended and I want to say it was like Supermansion season one at Stupid Buddies ended. And there was like nine months where there was hardly any work. Um, and that we both like, I mean, we were young, so we didn't really care that we were unemployed. And we were exhausted because we had just like basically run like a two year marathon of working in stop motion. And so for like three months, we just like, fucked off and did nothing and then and like i went on a vacation and sean was like living his own life and then in like september or october no it must have been september a mutual friend of ours that we knew through uh, that i had met through tumbleleaf reached out to me and he was like hey a friend of mine is making a short film and he needs like a stop motion element for it would you be willing to like do this stop motion element and Sean and I were just like, absolutely, that is so cool. And we'd always kept uh, like a functional stop motion stage wherever we had lived, which was just like a bed sheet hung from the ceiling and like a rickety table. Um, but we were like, yeah, like we will totally do this. Um, so we get the job, we meet the director, and basically he's like, okay, there's this character in my film, Baron Samedi, and he is basically he should be a stop-motion skeleton. And we're like, cool, we can do that. And they're like, and it should also be like like a quality animation. And we're like, yeah, whatever, we'll figure that out too. Um, and he's like, and also the deadline is like one month from now. And we're like, you know what? We already said yes, so here we are. Um, and so I built this puppet, which I'm like still to this day proud of that puppet. I love how that puppet turned out. Um, we started animating. And gradually we began to realize, oh, this is not a stop motion element in your film. This character is the main character of your live action film. So suddenly like the proportions just blew up and we were getting paid. And like the deal was he would pay us $300 to do this. And so we were making the main character of this like 10 minute short film um, with like a month to do everything. And we were like, all right, well, we got to go quick. Let's race. And we're like focusing. We're trying to fire it off. And this director just like kept disappearing for like a week, weeks on or like a week at a time. He would just ghost us. And then he'd come back a week later and be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Uh, this my, my wife's husband or not my wife, my uh, sister's husband just left her. So I was taking care of her. And then he'd be back and then he'd be gone. And then he'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was in the ER. I stepped on. Coal, hot coals and burned my foot and then he'd be gone and then he'd come back and it'd be another thing and it was crazy and like we got to this point where we had to shoot like 20 seconds a day to keep up so we were 
working a day shift and a night shift, and I would I would animate from like 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. and then Sean would animate from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. and we like changed the time on the clock in our living room to be Sean's upside down time, and it was madness. And we're like racing to meet this deadline, and he just keeps disappearing. And then we send him some footage for um, feedback, and he sends us this email that I still have saved. And the title of the email is Hold. And he's just like, hey, guys, I noticed that the pocket watch isn't in any of this footage. Like, where's the pocket watch? And we were like, what the hell is the pocket watch? And he was like, hold. And we never heard from him again. We would learn a year later, may, uh, at least a year later, that he had basically had like an emotional breakdown and moved to Alaska. And that was the end of that project. Uh, that so, is insane. <laughs> so it was also, like, you sound like a super intense person, you and Sean, like 10 hour shifts, double like animating. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, we that's kind of what you got to do to start a business. But so, I mean, but so that was before we had even thought about starting a business. We made we did that. It was a fucking nightmare, but it was amazing um, because we had, you know, once like the dust settled, we realized like we had made something that we never knew we were capable of. We like had produced like some high quality work that we the likes of which we had never done. And so then I like I got like a job, uh, which is a whole other story. I got a job in North Carolina. I went away and I came back. And Sean had made like a little mini, not even a short film, like a little gag with that same puppet. And we just thought it was so funny that we built a whole short film around that gag. And it was just it was just the skeleton quoting a line from a show that we thought was really funny. And we built a whole film around that. And we we're like, that was dumb and fun and kind of garbage. We should do that again. So we made that one, and it was with this skeleton, and it was almost Halloween, so we released it on Halloween. And then we were like, okay, we should make another one. Christmas is coming. We can make like a, a Christmas card. And at this point, we were just like vibing on like the excitement of having made something. And so Christmas rolled around, and we made in like two weeks this like fighting Christmas presence video that is like still in our demo reel today because we love it so much. Um so we made one thing, we made another thing, and then we're like, ooh, like we, we got this now, let's make another thing, and then studios started up again. And so we were like, I think like December or January rolled around and we were sucked back into the studio system. And we were like, okay, this is good, it's nice to make money again, but like we, we gotta keep making these films, like we totally were onto something here. Uh, so we spend, so we're like, all right, we're gonna spend this year making another film. And what proceeded was the most miserable experience of our lives. We were both highly dedicated animators working on really intense productions and trying to make a short film. So we would work we would wake up at 6 a.m., work from like 6 to 8:30, then be at actual work from 9 to 7. We'd work during lunch and then when we got back, we would work again from like 7:30 to like 9:30. And we just slowly ground ourselves to dust. It was such a profoundly miserable experience. And we thought it would take us like two months to make this film. You know, the first film we made in two weeks. So we're like, okay, we're at studios, two months. It wound up taking us maybe seven or eight months to finish. And at the end of it, we were just dead inside. 
And so then the studios kind of wrapped up. We were spit back out into the real world. And we were like, what the hell just happened? That was so miserable. And we were thinking about it and kind of weighing our priorities. And we're like, okay, we definitely are good at, like, we're definitely getting something here, making our own stuff. But it's very hard to make your own stuff if you're working for someone else. We need to work for ourselves. So that and that was like this definitive moment where everything changed. From then on, all of our actions, no longer were we trying to be the best at someone's studio. We were trying to be the best at making our own thing. And we didn't even really know what that looked like yet, but we just knew like, that's what it's got to be now. Um, so that was like one event. Simultaneously, that year of making this film and being miserable, I was on like my own journey Whenever you have downtime on an animation production, or I should say, on season two of Tumbleleaf, we had a lot of downtime. And so I spent all my time reading. And uh, I had like a question in my mind of like, why does the world work this way? Why do we use like money? Why does money dictate everything? Why are there wars? I was like getting crazy and being 25 or however old I was. And um, so I started reading books and I started with like history and history leads to politics and politics leads to war. And I was reading all these books and ultimately the conclusion I got to was it's all about, it's all a competition for resources. And at that point I started reading business books. I read like books on accounting, marketing, management, finance, you know, branding, all these things to try and understand like how this war for resources is fought. And so that was unrelated to us, to our animation pursuits. That was also happening. And then the third piece that really tied it all together was uh, maybe like in the middle of season two of Tumbleleaf, we were, everybody on the crew was getting pretty exhausted because we were working nonstop. And there had been like a couple little events that had occurred that had pissed people off. And so we decided we wanted to unionize. And the process of trying to unionize really shatters that like, oh, we're all a, a family in this together feeling. And suddenly it becomes very us and them. And you realize like the company is looking out for itself. And so you, the worker, have to look out for yourself. And it kind of made me realize what it means to be labor in a capitalist society, which definitely was like attached to all the reading I was doing. And so I began to realize like, no working man becomes rich. That's a quote that somebody once said to me. And I basically realized, like, as long as I was working for someone else, I'd be answering to them. I'd be giving them all my energy and all my creative energy, and I'd only get the scraps that were left. So reading about business, realizing that, like, being a laborer is a precarious role, and then Sean and I discovering that we actually have a creative voice worth pursuing. All that slams together, and I'm like, let's do this thing. And then... That all culminates in the very end of that year. In November, I met the sister of a friend of mine, and the sister was 30 and had just completed five years of starting a business. And I was like, oh my God, I'm kind of thinking of starting a business. Can you just tell me everything. And what she laid out was the utter misery and like stress and trial of trying to found a business. And she was like, it's been hard and I've had to work all these jobs to just to stay afloat. And I don't even know if it's worth it. This is kind of the first year that it feels like I'm not gonna fail on my face. Like maybe something real is happening, but I still don't even know. 
that's my experience. And after hearing all that from her, I was like, man, I really want to start a business. And so that was it. Wow. There's a lot of factors kind of all coming together at once, but they all, that was the moment that it all crystallized. She was like, you're 25. Man, that's, that's so journey. That's so uh, interesting, your journey, especially because it, it seems like it was a lot more of like an emotional and, and like, like you realize things about yourself and the way the world yeah. works and stuff for you to, for you to start this. It was um, a profound philosophical shift. Up until that point, I was like, cartoons are cool. And after that, I was like, I am a part of a greater mechanism that is the world around me. And I need to exercise as much control as I can, which sounds yeah, crazy. Well, yeah, I like what you said about, uh, you know, your labor as an as an animator, because that's what an animator is. Somebody some company is just paying you to spend your time producing something for them, basically. Yeah. You're you're on the factory floor. Yeah, Stop well, literally. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of people get into this industry because of the love for the creative side of it, and and don't really think about it from a business perspective. So, yeah. I think that's really unique. Um, so where's where's Apartment D, which is your studio at currently? Because uh, I know you just hired a third partner. Congratulations, that's awesome. Yeah, um, you. Can you just kind of get a snapshot of what it looks like, what you're doing right now, and then maybe we can talk about kind of the details of you learning how grueling it is to start up a business on yourself and then actually doing it yourself. Yeah. So fast forward three years, um, you know, we started picking up steam, getting jobs, and it all culminated into us doing a couple big projects for Mattel. And when that was all done, I basically went to Mattel and I was like, hey, we've done this for you and we've done this for you. Let us do everything for you. Um, and they were like, yes. So leading into this year, we got this huge contract from Mattel, which is the biggest contract we've ever gotten. It grew. It, it was like a huge, it was a big step forward for our company. Um, and it has led to the, we only really realized this last month, but as of June, we will have been full-time apartment D for a year, which is, which, I mean, it's still just like, confounding to me because as far as i was concerned i was like okay as of january you know every month that we're working here it's just apartment d like this is it we're gonna be full time and then all of a sudden in may i was like wait wait, wait a second actually we started being full time last june so and so suddenly i realized that that's where we were um so right now we're producing uh we're working with a couple different brands at, well, a few at uh, Mattel, but like the main thrust of it is that we are making, um, we're producing all of their Hot Wheels uh, stop motion content. So they, you know, they advertise primarily through YouTube now, and we're producing their entertainment content on YouTube, and it's been incredible. It's uh, what's really been great is it's just such a high volume. YouTube is all about volume, um, and so. We have to produce a lot fast. We have to write a lot. We have to build a lot and animate a lot and somehow keep it all under control and somehow keep our stories fresh and keep the animation moving. And that challenge, I think, has been the most rewarding thing we've done to date is just like trying to steer this massive ship. That is incredible. Um, and and there's only three of you, right, doing absolutely everything from making the business connections to 
pitching and writing and animating there's, and there's three of us at the core but yeah. um but like we bring people in all the time like as we speak right now there are two people building a set for one episode one person doing editing and vfx for another episode actually maybe that's it but it's rare that it's only three people i mean at our peak we had like maybe 15 people going at once so so what is an what does an episode look like so if the youtube ads our videos are they so the th so it they're the key is that they're entertainment videos if they were purely product placement then it, they'd be ads and mattel would have to pay google to put them on youtube but because they're right. entertainment pieces you know they can just put them up and get ad revenue for them um so we make these entertainment pieces they're like two and a half minute videos and they're all little narratives based on um like a given collection of hot wheels cars so for example Earlier this year, we did uh, this collection X Racers, and X Racers are these cool futuristic cars that have like see-through plastic elements, and they all look like they belong in Tron. And so we made this episode where they're in a laboratory, and they open a portal, and this car called a Hotwiler, which looks like a crazy dog with a flappy jaw, bursts through and starts tearing things apart, and so they chase it back through the portal to try and... Uh, try and like stop it and to like get the thing it stole from them and you know ultimately the goal from mattel's standpoint is to show off the product show these cars make them look cool but for us we're trying to base we really just want to tell our style of story the the, the biggest thing is we've been moving cl closer and closer towards jobs that give us the creative freedom to work on our creative voice, which I think is like the most, the most important thing you can do as an artist is develop your own voice. Right. So I, I just looked up one of the episodes of X Racer compete on the X Race Speedway, I guess. Um, and oh, it's no, got like 300,000. Oh, that's something else? If you look oh. up, uh, if you, let's see, how would you find it? I can find it real quick. It's, if you Google, what? or if you go to YouTube yeah. and look up, um, the Hot Wheels, like, channel. Yes. Um, and then do Hot Wheels X Racers, which is spelt with a Y, R-A-Y-C-E. And then it's uh, X Racers on Crystal Hunt. Uh, so not as impressive as whatever that view count was. But, you know, for us, we're really measuring against, like, the previous videos from past years. Um, and so we're really pleased with how we've been performing because we've only been like getting better and better compared to last year's videos. So how do you make something that so the X Racers Crystal or on Crystal Hunt has 150,000 views and it was uploaded a month ago? How do you know it's going to be? How how do you know it's going to get so many views? Like 150,000 is still no joke. Is it yeah. because Hot Wheels already has a a subscriber base? I mean, it is definitely, it's, you know, part of it is definitely based on the brand that you're working with. Hot Wheels has, you know, a couple million subscribers, maybe. Um, mm. But, like, to date, the thing that we've done that's gotten the most views was, um, for Nickelodeon, We our very, our first, like, real job was for Nickelodeon doing an animated, like, a, one of their actresses told, like, a, a personal experience story, and then we animated over it. And that, I think, to this day, has maybe like 2.5 million views, which still is not like a crazy number, but certainly it is by our standards. Um, and that was, I, I really think that was just because people think that actress is hot. 
You know, I'd like to, I would like to say it's because we did stop motion and stop motion is so interesting. And maybe that's true. Maybe the stop motion really did play a part in it. But I also know that all the comments in that YouTube were from like horny 13 year olds. So, you know, well, you got to give you a little take. audience. <laughs> so, I mean, oh, sorry. Well, all I was going to say is like so much of media is leveraging existing brands. You know, that's like what a celebrity is. They're just a, an existing brand that you can leverage in your film to get more of an audience. So what is the goal of Apartment D? You know, you've you just reached at one year where you're working on it full time. You have like a big client now. Um, you've hired a new partner. What is the what is the ultimate goal? Like, where do you want to take Apartment D? Because you've already kind of removed yourself from being like a labor animator to owning your own business. So is have you reached what you wanted and it's just like, let's go and do this now? Or is there something bigger you still want to get? I like to say that this is like the end of act one. Act one was us like getting our feet on the ground. And now the work can, now that we like have a foundation, the work can actually begin. Um, you know, I think our long term Hollywood goal would be to produce a series. And right now is the best time to try and produce a series just because there are so many online outlets that are fighting for content and just like, I mean, they're just like scraping at the, the walls looking for something new. Um, and also stop motion really is having like its moment. Uh, so yeah, in the long term, we want to produce a series, like an original series. That's our idea from scratch. Um, Do you have something in mind or are you just kind of laying the base of your business right now to get that going? Uh, we've had, we have like three concepts that we've played with. One of them is, one of them's pretty fleshed out and our goal is to produce it as a short film this year. Um, is it starring your skeleton armature? <laughs> no, no, he's retired now. He's, he's retired. He no longer is functional. He's like a sad, broken skeleton. Um, but so we have like an idea that we've played with for like literally a decade at this point. And we're, and it, in it is basically the visual thesis of apartment D like what, apartment D looks like which i think is captured really well on our demo reel but this film would just like concisely tell that st that visual story um and then after that we have like two other ideas that we've been developing and i mean our goal is just to keep making our, our truly our goal is just to keep making things in our voice and chase that passion like we did a we got the, we had the opportunity not too long ago to work with a youtube um I don't know what you'd call them. They're, they're Let's Players on YouTube. And we just love their work and thought that we could do something cool for them. So we reached out and they're like, yeah, do something cool for us. That is the best feeling. And that's what Hot Wheels really feels like. We were like, hey, we think we could do some really cool stuff with Hot Wheels. And they're like, please, please do. Um, <laughs> so I think like we, we want to keep chasing that feeling. And chase, like, the biggest thing is also like, all we do now is learn. Every day we have to do something that we've never done before and it's really hard and really scary. And when it's done, we, you know, we gained an experience point and we learned something new. And I think that's the biggest thing. It's like we, I was talking to someone recently and they were like, oh, well, you know, if this producer or if this agent wanted to like take you on and like buy, basically buy apartment D and like grow it and you would just like work for it, would you do that? And on one hand, that probably means we'd make a lot more money, but the reason we're here, we're not, nobody got into stop motion for the money. We came here to learn and grow both as artists and, and also as like individuals in a broader 
context. So that the feeling of learning and the ability to like exercise our creative voice is what we're truly chasing. But I think like in terms of like the practical steps, it's getting more things that like getting more series that allow us to produce episodically and tell a story over an arc and throw as much of our creative voice into it as possible. So uh, going back about three years, you know, you just put together Apartment D as a studio, but you don't have any clients or anything. How did you go about getting your first client? Like, hey, companies, like we have some animation skills. I have connections. Uh, yeah. Hire us and we'll make you something. Like, how does how does that work? Well, you know, people always talk about spec work, you know, like basically do a job for free, approach a company and then be like, hey, I did this job. Like I did this. If you pay me money, I could like do it again, but better. You want to you want to do this? And that is totally a legitimate. I, I do think that's legitimate. I think you need to show your work. And uh, somebody very smart once said to me that nobody you can't describe stop motion to someone. You just have to show them. Um, and so while we weren't literally producing spec work for companies, all of our films were functionally spec work. All of our films were us showing people, hey, look, we can do it. And this is what it would look like if we did do it. So like, so in the lead up, what year was it? It must've been 2016. In the early years, in the early months of 2016, we were still working at studios, but we were like, okay, this year, we're just saving up some money, and then this year we're like taking the leap. Um, but all along, like we were still producing little things, and we were talking it up to our to the network we had built. Um, so that almost a year later, we got our first job. Our first, uh, I would, I'm kind of rambling. Our first like two or three jobs were strictly from word of mouth. We had built this big network at the studios of animators and artists and producers and directors. Um, and then we had shown them by consistently making our own work that we make work. You know, we're going to make it whether or not you give us money to make it. So if you give us money, we'll just make it even better. That was like the impression that we were giving people. Um, so that finally, when I bit, when we started like announcing to the world, like, yeah, we're leaving, we're going to start this company, Apartment D, like we're going to make a studio. Um, you know, it basically we had this dragnet already made of people who were like, you know, every now and then a job gets dropped in somewhere to somebody. And if they're not going to do it, they, oh, but these guys like at Apartment D, like they're trying to do a thing. Um, so our very first job was like just a, it was the husband of someone I worked with and he had a production company that needed a vanity plate, like a little animated logo. And so we did that for him. And we didn't even do it for money. We did it for he he rented out his equipment very often. And so he was like, I can't pay you in money, but I can pay you in the equivalent amount of rental. And at the time I was like, man, we are getting screwed. But like, whatever, we need to make stuff. We'll do it. But that actually turned out to be so incredibly valuable because then we just had gear. We had the gear to sustain like the next two years of work without buying any additional stuff. It was so valuable. Um, but the big, the big like strike of lightning was, uh, I think it was the summer of 2017. Um, a friend of a friend of a friend reached out to Sean and was like, Hey, you do like 2d effects animation, right? 
at Nickelodeon, we're going to do like this slime thing. Would you want to like animate some slime? And he was like, yeah. So he wound up on a phone call with like all of these creative directors at Nickelodeon. And he was like, yeah, I do 2D. You know, I do stop motion. And they're like, wait, you do stop motion. And suddenly like this job that was supposed to be like, oh, do like a little bit of 2D for this thing turned into like, hey, can you just make this whole episode in stop motion? And so like overnight, boom, we're in production, go. And so it was Sean and me, and we knew we were going to do it on a down shooter because it would be just like the quickest way to pull it off. Um, and we knew a friend of ours, Cammy, had just made a down shooter film of her own. So we're like, hey, Cammy, we'll totally pay you to work on this. Uh, so Cammy jumped in. We've always worked with the same DP, so our DP jumped in. And on those early jobs where we were making like no money, we'd make sure everyone else got paid. And then whatever scraps were left, which were usually barely anything is what Sean and I would get paid. Um, so we did that Nickelodeon job and it was an unmitigated disaster, but we learned a ton from it. Um, and then a few months after that, I had worked with this woman who's a very talented director named Kirsten Lepore. I'd worked with her like a couple years earlier on a stop motion episode of adventure time. And she reached out to us and she was like, Hey, a friend of mine reached out about this job. I don't think it's right for me, but maybe it's right for you guys. And it was totally right for us. So we got to work on this, a second job that was also down shooter. Um, and that kind of, that's after those two jobs or those three jobs that year, the ball was now like rolling. This was happening. So the following year we picked up again, every like January through like May, we would work at other studios to get like supplemental income. And in between gigs, we might like hop back to studios and jump around just to, like keep money flowing. But we'd always try to like set aside some months in the summer to just like push and try to make something. And so 2018 rolled around and we had kind of had like a conversation with this director that we really liked who was producing work and getting, getting work. And we we're like, Hey, you get a lot of work, but you never have like a place or a crew to do your work. And like, that seems to kind of be like a problem. Like you're always trying to put a crew together at the last minute. What if we're your crew? Like, we will just help you. Like if you get a thing, we got you. And he's like, yeah, actually that would be cool. Cool. So we set that deal up in like maybe February. We don't hear anything from him. And then all of a sudden in May, he's like, Hey, this opportunity jumped up. You guys should bid on it. Like make some spec work and bid on it. And if you get it, like we'll do it. Um, and so in three days with two all-nighters, Cammy, Sean, and I put together this whole pitch package. And we delivered it to this company, and then we just waited. And they're like, yeah, 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 we'll get back to you. And we never heard from them. And after like a month, we were like, okay, so clearly that didn't happen. And we were like resigned. They're like, oh, I guess this summer maybe we'll just have to work at other studios. It didn't quite line up. And then all of a sudden out of the blue, at like the end of June, they reach out. And they're like, hey, you got it. Go. And we're like, ah. And this was, I mean, like, we had basically, from, like, 2017 to 2018, suddenly we had grown by, like, ten times just by the scale of the job we had landed. Um, and, yeah, and we just, and that was it. That was that was last June. That was the June that's going to make it a year as of this June. Man, it sounds like such a wild ride. How do you keep focus when, when you're, like, out of work or things aren't going right? Like, how do you know that you want to pursue this instead of, going back to studio work or those jobs in between just being like, okay, maybe, maybe I can hang on to this a little longer. 
I mean, I think that is truly the biggest challenge. Making that work is like resisting the stress and like not succumbing to the comfort of a full-time job has been the hardest journey for sure. Um, I don't know. You, you just keep going. You know, we, I would ask my brother just completed med school and I would always ask him, you know, how do you deal with all that stress? And he would just say to me like, you know, you just take it one day at a time. And so I worked on that mindset. And in the meantime, like Sean and I are really into uh, philosophy. And so we read like Stoic philosophy and Buddhist philosophy. And that's all about like, how do you cope with stress and discomfort and suffering and like stay tranquil or at least stay like even keel. And honestly, like a lot of that has been really influential. Once you accept that this new heightened level of stress is actually just your baseline, then it gives you a lot more room to play, you know? Yeah, fair enough. What What is maybe the most stressful time or like, did you ever have a, a like, obviously starting your business didn't isn't like a smooth path. Did you ever have like a huge mistake or like something that was so stressful or, you know? Endlessly. Endless. I, mean, I would say like, you know, now I'm really getting the hang of it and things are not quite as on fire as they used to be. Uh, but like that first month where I quit Bix Picks and was just like out in the world, I think that was like a month long panic attack. I was just like, my mind was on fire. And every time I wasn't working, I was just wasting money that I didn't have. And I was like, ah, it was, it was panic. And incrementally since then, it's always just gotten like a little bit better. But like on Polly Pocket, we were in the middle of building our sets and then the space we were building in got shut down and like in the middle of production with deadlines on all sides, we had to, that, I mean, my, that just blew up my world. That, there was like a day I remember on Polly Pocket where three times in a row, my stomach just like dropped with just like dread and I was just crushed emotionally. And you know, you, you, you try to make it to the end of the day, you go to bed, you wake up and you start over. Wow. So is there anything you you do differently looking back or do you think you kind of made all the right decisions at the right times? I mean, I would never say I made all the right decisions at all the right times, but, you know, it's hard to say looking back. I think, you know, I think the biggest I, I've always thought in those moments of stress, I've always been like one day when I'm like when we've gotten there, wherever there is, I'm going to look back on how stressed out I was and wish I had not been so stressed out. And it's true. You know, like, I'm lucky enough that this, like, this will not end my life. You know, if this all fell apart, I have options. I have friends that care about me and a family that cares about me. And so truly the stakes were not as high as they felt, but they felt high. Um, if I could have been less stressed you know, first of all, I would have shaved less years off the end of my life. But also, I think now that I've started to enjoy this instead of just kind of being like stressed out by it, now I'm unlocking like the creativity to make it what I want it to be. Up until then, it was just like trying to put a sculpture together with shaky hands because you're nervous. Now I can like look and think and play and like, oh, what if I push it this way? No, pull it back. We'll try this. And it's only because I've finally gotten 
partially because I'm in control of my stress more and partially because things are objectively more stable than they've been. Um, but stress only stood in my way. Makes a lot of sense. So I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your your client relations. So how do you actually go about like what does that look like from the negotiation negotiation stage to the delivery? Like you touch all steps in between. What does that what does that look like? What are kind of the process of putting something together from scratch for someone? Well, you know, the lesson of animation that for some reason people need to be reminded of again and again is pre-production. And we need to be reminded of this too. Pre-production is so incredibly valuable. If you spend 60% of your time in pre-production and only 40 making the thing, it'll be, it'll go way smoother than if those percentages are reversed. Um, I truly believe that. So, you know, the beginning is always just like, how do you convey what's in your head to the client enough that a, they can get on board with it and B, they can't freak out later when what you made looks like what you said you were making. Um, Cause like, for example, on Nickelodeon, we did these like mood boards where we like laid out what the color space would look like. And then halfway through production, they were like, why, why is their skin tone that color change it? And we were like, that's, that's not how this works, but we had to. And so we did. And that was awful. Um, so like, you know, making like, do it all. Make a, you know, make an animatic. Make a mood board where you lay out the color and the feel and like the things you're referencing. Do like some test images under camera, like build it physically so you can see like that's what we want to do. The more you do in the beginning, the less questions you have when time becomes way more precious. So do you like, go to the client and you have like a whole package set together, like a test animation even? Like you build the set, you build the puppets, like... Not as far as making... Of, uh, it's not like as far as making everything final. Like, so for example, for Polly Pocket, we made a video that was just us talking and explaining what we wanted to do and like who we were and like how we were going to approach the project and like what our inspirations were. Then we put together a mood board and it was all just like photos from Google like oh we like this and this and this and we like this color space and we like this design and so like smush it all together and that's kind of what we're gonna go for um, and then lastly we did a test animation and it was nothing was final it wasn't like final sets or final puppets it was just like something a character that we had that we could animate and like a quickly prototyped thing that had to be able to do a thing because the whole premise was Polly Pocket shrinks so we can't make the toy shrink, but we can make the world grow around her with replacement parts. So we just demoed that idea to them. And that's what did it. That's what won it. And I think whenever you can do that, it is so valuable. Like right now on Hot Wheels, YouTube, there's no time to luxuriate in pre-production. It's like you get one day of pre-production and then you need to sprint for like two weeks. And so... This whole year has been us learning how do we just like how can we just sneak like little bits of pre-production like what if we just like sent some pictures so that they know what it's going to look like in the end what if we just like when we're building the set we take like some in progress photos so they don't freak out when the set looks like this in the end and just like where can we kind of like hedge our bets and communicate it really is all communication you know how can you communicate as effectively as possible with the client so that 
they know what to expect every step of the way. They're never waiting in like mystery as to what will happen. Nice. Yeah. Well, and then once they say yes, go, you just jump right into the production of it. Like yeah. how, does, how long? Did I, yeah. I mean, kind of, yeah. You know, once they're like, cool, the pre-production looks good. You know, it depends on the style, the type of project. For Polly Pocket, we needed to do voice records. Um, so there was like, we before we even did an animatic, there was like a script. We did voice records. We put the voice records in the animatic. There was revisions on the animatic. We did design frames to, so they would kind of get a feel for what it was going to look like. But then once all that's approved, go. And go as and fast you- as you can. And you have a studio space where you're building sets for all these different clients that are all like completely separate. Like, do you have a giant warehouse of, of like just stuff? No. So, uh, you know, back to your earlier question of like where we see apartment D going one day we want to be in a physical space, but once you're in a space, you have to keep up with overhead. And once you have to keep up with overhead, you have to make creative sacrifices right now. So in Los Angeles, you know, we are, we are not alone in the community of artists trying to build something on, like build something for themselves. So we have a friend who operates their own wood shop. We have a friend who also does like production out of their space. And so we have this like network of small spaces that we can kind of expand into when we need to. So for Polly Pocket, we were working out of two spaces. Uh, earlier this month when we were doing Enchantimals and Hot Wheels, we were working out of three spaces. Um, and that's not the ideal way to do it, but it keeps the overhead so low that you can take creative risks and take on jobs that are maybe not the most profitable, but you think will do a lot just for like building your brand or kind of like putting your work on display. And so we've relied a lot on that network, the, this like, you know, uh, I don't know, a network of like micro studios basically. Nice. Wow. Well, (laughs) so what's, so you have a dream of kind of getting to that studio space. Do you have like, is there like, you want to build like a network of a hundred people or sorry, like a hundred people working at your studio? Like how big do you want it to be? Cause eventually you say you want to build like a TV series or something like that. Yeah. So when you're at Belief, are you envisioning something that of that caliber? Yeah. I mean like, you know, at this point, our biggest limitation is our space and like we have our own space and we crammed 15 people in it, and boy, was it uncomfortable. Um, Tumble Leaf, I think, got you know, got upwards of like 100 people working on it. Maybe not all at the exact same time, but like over the course of a project. And I do think, I mean, that you know, I'm not. I, I, it, it makes no sense to say like I want 100 people, but I would want if I could get a, if we could make a series that could support that many artists, that would be incredible. You know. Right. Yeah. Um, there is like a saying though, or not a saying, but there's like research that states like within a company or an organization, around 150 employees is when things just become exponentially harder. Morale and culture and teamwork and communication, all these things start to break down right around that and line. You have to hire an HR manager, that's and then you move yeah. from small to medium size. Yeah, yeah. Right, and it like you reach a size where not everybody knows each other's name anymore. To me, like. I, you know, I'm not going to artificially stop the growth of this company for anything, but there's something real nice about like right around, you know, 60 to 100, a kind of crew that you could build something great with 
without becoming bogged down by your own weight, I think is like mm-hmm. really a beautiful thing. Definitely, yeah. And and so kind of with the studio space um, kind of restriction, are there other advantages or disadvantages of choosing stop motion versus like 2D or 3D? Like, uh, I guess 2D and 3D don't really have that cost associated with it. They still have overhead of technology and, and studio space and stuff like that. But are there maybe advantages or disadvantages of stop motion that people don't really consider that you've discovered since doing this? I would say that with stop motion, the biggest disadvantages are you need space and everything's a physical asset. In a world where we're moving more and more into organized digital systems, everything you do is physical. And it's made me realize that to run a stop motion company, you really need to think more in terms of, well, not uh, part of how you need to think is as if you're like a factory or as if you're like a retail store where you need to keep track. Like think of Walmart. Walmart needs to keep track of all these different assets spread out across all these different apartments and keep departments and keep them all stocked and know where everything is at all times. That to me sounds like a stop motion studio. Mm. And I'm and they have all sorts of digital infrastructure to support that. And I think that technology hasn't quite made it into stop motion yet, but that I think that is truly like the next step. Um until so, then So what do you what do you mean by that? Like um, like it's like with Walmart, a lot of it is just purely logistics. So, you know, this yeah. thing is sent over there and this thing is getting sent over there. So with stop motion, is it like armature A needs to go to studio space B and animator C needs to go to studio X and construction person? I want to put Bluetooth tags on puppets and Bluetooth like tags on stages. So, you know, uh-huh. what is where automatic, like automatically and I would even go as far in my dystopian studio as putting tags on like our heads of departments. So you know like, oh, Jason's working on stage three right now if you need to go talk to him. Oh, and Barney, he's in the set department, but he'll go back to puppets soon. You know, like human assets and physical assets and managing those are the most important part of stop motion. And I think it's pretty neglected at this point. So I I guess, well, with... 2D and 3D, I, it's similar, I guess, because you still need to send assets to people and, and whatnot back. It's just not in like a physical space. Like I've heard. Well, that's the key. It's they're already digital assets. Have, like, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, and, and, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that is exactly it. Like these infrastructures exist already for managing digital assets, and they do exist for managing physical assets and managing people. But stop motion just hasn't caught on yet, and so. Implementing that kind of information technology is really important to me once we get to that, you know, to that size. Yeah. And that, that's interesting from another point of view, though. Like, I've never thought of it like that before. For instance, like Leica is trying to elevate stop motion from, you know, using technology like 3D printing and like super smooth motion to get the end product like super, super clean and realistic. But the other side you're saying is just the logistics of putting something together can drastically, I guess, increase quality and production speed and everything just from being more organized that way. You know, I think if you can increase an individual artist's productivity, then you free them up to put more of their art into the work. Instead of just being like, well, I got to hit that deadline, they can say, like, I have the skill sets to hit the deadline. What can I do in that space? So one thing you said before is uh, when you learned about business and how as an animator you were just kind of the labor, and not not to say that in a bad thing, but how do you envision that – experience changing for the animators that work for studio or sorry apartment d 
um, with what you're trying to build? You know, I, for me, you know, I don't see being like, quote unquote, the labor is a bad thing. I worked with my hands. I work with my hands and it's working with my hands is always going to be infinitely more satisfying than sending emails. That's just yeah. the fact of the matter. Or like doing accounting. I don't get, I didn't start a company to be an accountant, although I am now. Um, but the problem was like, as a, if you fall into that mindset of like, of labor, it's so easy to become victimized in a world where, you know, like capitalism doesn't care about the worker. It cares about the company. Laws are written to protect companies and, you know, like when you sign your contract with a company, you're saying, if I do something wrong, it's my fault, not yours. If you do something wrong, it's my fault, not yours. If this breaks and it hurts me, it's my fault, not yours, even if neither one of us was involved. Everything, all all liability is put on the worker. And I just realized, like, the system is stacked. Um, I want to build a company that frees up artists to do their best work. So much, so much of the time, these artists are being like victimized. They're being, you know, sped up and put under duress to do their to work fast without any consideration for the quality. But it needs to get churned out. And I think so often, like crappy producers and crappy culture stand in the way of artists doing their best work. When I think about like the IT behind a company, I'm thinking about like, how can we make, how can we make these artists as efficient and as free of the burdens of this company as possible so that they can just do their best work? Like, I just want to sweep the company away so that these artists feel like they are just doing art. I think that's where you you get the best work. You want to create an environment, I guess, that you saw from your experience was, was something that you really wanted, I guess, out of becoming an artist and getting into this industry. Yeah. Um, I, and with, with like, uh, like the deadlines thing you said, like you will have deadlines, like with the Hot Wheels, you say you have to do everything really quick. So um, how can you still maintain that quality with, with trying to, with pushing stuff out too? Is that, is it come back to culture again for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think some companies have this culture of like, get it done now. And you just feel rushed. You just feel like you have to go fast and it doesn't matter. Just get it done. And like we still have – here we still have to rush. We have no time. But the difference is like we're – because of the culture we've begun to build, we're trying to see like how much can we achieve in this window of time. And it's just like – it's reframing the question I think from like how fast can you go to what can you accomplish in this – within these parameters. You know, I, I, we're big fans of like creative limitation. You can look at a client's notes as, oh, they're destroying what I worked so hard on and like they don't care about the art. Or you can say like, okay, these are the parameters they're defining. How do we do our best job within that space? And that's like a cultural notion that existed at Bixpix and does not exist at other companies. Yeah. Huh. So and you and you said before, kind of, um, you know, stop motion hasn't really had its go yet. Uh, and and like when I think of the stop, the history of stop motion, like I remember seeing like old King Kong or Sinbad the Sailor with like Ray Harryhausen, who's 
who's kind of developing as a as a craft for Hollywood. And then there's this giant lull over the years where you don't see anything and then Nightmare Before Christmas comes out and then it just kind of disappears again. And now there's a little bit of a resurgence with online and social material and companies buying like short spots and also like a whole bunch of movies are being made for Netflix and Amazon Prime and stuff and TV shows. Where do you think, like where is stop motion right now for you? Because you're in the thick of it. You've worked for some of these big companies. You've been doing this for I don't know how many how many years now so like where is it where is stop motion right now do you think um so most people uh, so i've been working in stop motion for seven years most yeah. people tell me that i basically started right when the golden age of stop motion began you know we yeah. live in a, from when i started to now there's only been an increase in the amount of studios the amount of work the amount of content and the amount of attention being paid to stop motion in my mind, the last 10 years have been the, pr the prologue, and now it's like really starting to begin, truly. All the, all, everything leading up to now was kind of like rising from the ashes, getting our bearings, getting moving again, finding a few key people that know a thing or two, and like starting to get noticed. Now people know, like stop motion is back in the zeitgeist, and there are... Not a lot, but a few intelligent people like really trying to make stop motion something amazing. Like there's this animator, Max Winston. Everything he does is gold. We need like a hundred of him. <laughs> um, and, you know, like now we're at this point where like the technology's there, the people are there, the community's there. Now it's time for like the individuals to be the directors or like the producers or like the people who develop a new technology, those people to rise and really push this medium into its next phase. Nice. And, and I think and it's I, happening. Yeah. I know in our pre-chat you said kind of like stop motions had a bad rap in the past for like being creepy or whatnot. Like why do you think that is? And do you think it's, it's tougher to sell stop motion sometimes when you're trying to pitch it because of that? I think it just got pigeonholed. You know, you think of like the successes it had and they were all like creepy practical effects or the nightmare before Christmas. And that just yeah. set a tone. It set a tone and a tone that lingered for a long time. But I think we were being given the opportunity to break away from that. You know, the work of Max Winston is not creepy or nightmare before Christmas. And like Tumbleleaf was beautiful and cartoony and bright and sunny and fun. And I think like the medium is finally at a place where it's accessible enough that people can experiment. The only thing holding us back now is like getting the proper leaders. I think the people at the top right now are from the old world of stop motion. And we need like the people who are raised in this generation of stop motion, the people who know the technology and have new ideas and aren't just like hearkening back to Ray Harryhausen, but are trying to push and find new new ground that hasn't been explored before. And that's, I mean, honestly, I think that's what we're trying to do. We, whenever we make something, we're always trying to do something we never do, did, have done before and make a visual that we've never seen before. So much of stop motion was just like hearkening back. I think it's time to like start sh jumping forward into like places that we have not been yet. So I think I, I, I really like that sentiment because in kind of the older stop motion, it was like purely like you're going to animate a monster kind of thing yeah. and make it alive, like kind of how CG does that now. And then with like Max Winston, where he's animating like, I don't know, a circle with eyeballs and it's like fun and wiggly and stuff. What yeah. is where 
where is like your like what is your style for your for apartment D or is like where do you want to take it? We always say that we're Saturday morning cartoons in stop motion. We're heavily okay. influenced by like you know the superhero cartoons of the '90s and like anime and the, the both the, like the economy of animation that they create and also the just dynamic visuals and the punchy animation and like the energy and like the uplifting spirit of it all. Like that is what got us all into animation. That's what Sean's work embodies. And that's what like apartment D is chasing everything we do. We want it to be, you know, animation should be alive. It should be animating. It should be full of energy and be jumping out. And when you're done watching it, it should like have forced an energy into you. And you're just like tingling with it. The best work yeah. I've seen has like left that kind of impression on me. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so what's next for you and and Apartment D at this point? Like, you just you just finished up a year, which again, congratulations. That's that's phenomenal for a small business, especially. Um, so, what what's next? What's the next step for you? Um, well, you know, we we finished up a year, and so now we can finally get started. You know, we're <laughs> we're we're making this stuff for Mattel, which is awesome. And every video we do, we're just trying to like push ourselves again and again again and find new avenues and new ways to use our voice um you know i'm i i am the you know the producer and like the networker and the mouth of apartment d and so i'm still trying to build our connections you know we always have a couple irons in the fire and it's just a matter of which one's going to strike um but our goal above all other goals is to produce a short film again it's been like three years i think two yeah like three years since sean and i made a film and now with cammy here like we are the best we have ever been at doing exactly that so it's time there's nothing stopping us except for ourselves we have to make something uh so well just to kind of wrap things up unless there's anything you want to share um any final thoughts on somebody else who's looking to start a style motion studio specifically that you you'd give them advice for or kind of uh, uh, encouragement or even a warning, I guess. Yeah. I, I would say the moment you decide to be a professional artist, you are a business already. You're a brand and you need to manage your own finances and you're probably going to have to get some assets. You're already a business and you should always be kind of like, you know, playing the game of like, who's going to pay me to do what? What creative opportunity can I get? Can I play this off that? Who's going to pay me more? You know, the, the game is real whether or not you're playing it. So participate. Um, and once you get to that point, you have to keep making things. The hardest thing to do as a professional artist where you work 10 hours a day at a creative job is to go home and keep being creative. And that is absolutely what you have to do. The only reason Sean and I have gotten this far is because – before, well before we ever thought anybody would give us money to make stuff, we made stuff. And well before we thought we could make anything good, we made stuff. You got to fail and fail and try and try and just like always try to grow. You know, if you fail, it means you tried something you'd never done before. And that's the correct move to make. Every film that Sean and I made was something different, something we'd never done. And each step, we try something new. And if we fail, we learn. And if we do it right, then we have to do something different next time. And that all comes from just like making work. Make work. There's a great book, The War of Art. Yeah, The War of Art. And it's about, it's about exactly that. It's about what does it take to be a professional artist? And the first thing it takes 
is you've got to make art even when you don't want to make art. Sitting around and waiting for inspiration is not what professionals do. That's what lazy people who are not really artists do. Make art whether or not you want to make it. Produce, grow, and that kind of momentum, more than anything else, will, will propel you forward creatively and professionally. Well, that's that's uh, some really encouraging and, and real advice. I mean, I think... I for me, just sitting here and listening, I've, I've had a, a great time just because I'm super interested in what you're doing. And, and I think it's quite amazing that you've started your own studio because in stop motion specifically, because uh, looking back, it's it's like some it's a reason I never got into it for the past decade because I was too afraid to kind of like make my own opportunities when I didn't see any. So I took the business path and now I'm, I'm coming back. So uh, I've really enjoyed just just listening to you share everything about Apartment D and your and your journey. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, I just think these thoughts to myself all the time. It's nice saying them out loud. Now you can think them out loud. Great. Yeah. If I could uh, add one last addendum to yeah, what I was saying before. Yeah. Once you've made all this work, show people. Artists like to work in a notebook and then hide their notebook. You have to show people. And in the age of Instagram, there's no excuse not to. You know, make the work to grow and show people to show them how you grow. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Max. And yeah, uh, if you're listening and you want to show people your work, you can get in touch with Max and Sean at contact at apartmentdfilms.com. And uh, also check them out on Instagram at apartmentd. And I'll include the links uh, to those in the description of the video. And that's all for now. Okay, bye. Bye.